0: For another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, February 18th, 2010. Oh boy, have we got a lot of ground to cover today. Short sermon review though, I should let you know that. Excuse me while I take a sip of my Earl Grey. Ah, tasty. Tasty. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Just no shortage of crazy things being said out there. And right now, we are in the middle of a Category 5 heresy hurricane, uh, thanks to uh, Brian McLaren and uh, the publication of his latest book, A New kind of Christianity. So, of course, we'll be talking a little bit about that today. You know what? We've got so much ground to cover. I think I'm just going to just dive right into it. I do happen to have, uh, at my disposal here, a very nice, large, warm glass of, uh, well, mug of um, Earl Grey tea. It feels really good on a cold, wintry day. (sighs) Yep, still a lot of snow out there. Anyway, so uh, uh, keep you posted on that. Okay, uh, today's edition, like, we're going to just dive right in. Let's talk about what we're going to talk about, and then we'll talk about it. Yeah, that's not how that works. Um, I've uh, written a new piece today, kind of in light of yesterday's program. Uh, the, the, I did a segment yesterday asking the question who's responsible for unleashing the emergent church virus on the church? And, uh, and the answer to the question was, uh, you know, uh, the, the Druckerites, those who follow, who basically were the disciples of Peter Drucker. That would be Rick Warren, Bob Buford, and uh, Bill Hybels. They're mainly responsible for this whole thing. And, um, and so as of today, you're basically working off of the fact that Peter Drucker is a business guru, um, or was a business guru. We don't want to, you know, he's the guy who came up with the concept of knowledge workers and things like that. And, uh, as, uh when I was doing my MBA at Pepperdine, um, you got, you know, you couldn't take a class without running into Peter Drucker. Anyway, uh, since they, the, you know, since this is all kind of a business way of thinking, and since Rick Warren, Bill Hybels, and Peter Drucker are, primarily responsible for changing the way we do church, you know, know, or changing the leadership model of a pastor, if you would, from being a humble uh, shepherd of God's flock to the uh, vision-casting CEO. Um, I've decided that we're going to go with the business theme on this, and I'm calling on the Druckerites to issue a safety recall for their defective product, uh, known as the Emergent Church. So uh, we'll, we'll be talking about that today. And then we're going to segue into that, into uh, you know, kind of talking about, since we're talking about the Emergent Church, I'm going to play a little bit of audio from a, a recent interview over the weekend that uh, Brian McLaren did on a program entitled um, State of Belief, and he was on there with the Reverend Dr. Uh, uh Welton Gaddy and uh we'll just play a couple of minutes of that and then I'm gonna segue from McLaren into reading an article uh from an old uh old magazine that used to uh, be published, man, when what was the 60s, 70s, entitled Present Truth Magazine. And uh their archives are still out there on the internet in you know and uh the name of the uh article is entitled hermeneutics i'm going to read a portion of in fact probably most of this article because I think it's very important for all of us and then i'm going to do the unthinkable i you're thinking what are you going to do, Chris? Are you going to like jump off a thirty story building into a glass of water um no, I'm not going to do that um but what I am going to do is I'm going to read to you with very little commentary. Uh, the entire book of Hebrews. I, you know, I was thinking, of, I was toying around with the idea of having um, uh, Bob DeWay on the program and uh, in interviewing him regarding the book of Hebrews. And then I thought, you know what? I think it would actually be better rather than talking about the book of Hebrews. I'm just going to, in you know, in one setting, uh, we it, it There might be a commercial break in the middle of it, but I'm going to just read to you uh the what uh, 14 cha- 13 chapters of the uh, book of hebrews and um and basically compare and contrast the claims that you heard McLaren that you will hear McLaren make on the state of uh, belief program uh to just the plain simple um text of the book of hebrews real simple and and then for uh, to to for the finish off the program today, our sermon review is a good sermon. It comes to us via Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Hacienda Heights, California, and uh, I thought it would be good to get another pastor's take on Luke chapter four verses sixteen through thirty. Um, you know, I I did a good sermon review on the guy who twisted it from the McLaren point of view. I, I, what I did is I had uh, was it Jeremy Rhodey? I played his sermon against. Um, you know, it kind of uh, against the uh, the bad sermon that we heard uh, from that guy in Texas who had McLaren's vision, you know, idea of it, and turned it into the social gospel. And in light of the fact that on Monday's program, uh, you know, Pastor Wolfmüller and I uh, reviewed uh, the first twenty minutes of uh, Rick Warren's uh, radicalist keynote address entitled "Radical Compassion," where he completely twists Luke chapter four sixteen through thirty. I think there's a lot of uh, the, the Luke chapter four sixteen through thirty is one of those passages worth uh basically sticking a stake in the ground and saying no, we're going to get this one right, and we're not going to allow these guys to take and hijack this passage because uh, you know th- I think that's really important. So what we're going to do is we're going to listen to Pastor William Swirla's recent sermon on that text and uh, see how he handles the text, see if he sees the social gospel or if he sees Christ the Messiah fulfilling the passage. Um, so uh, it'll be all kinds of, lots lots of stuff to cover, it'll be all kinds of good, and so uh, make yourself comfortable. Like I said, we've got lots of ground to cover, and, um, and we'll kind of go at it from that point of view. So maybe I should play this, even though I'm the one who wrote it. From the Extreme Theology blog, that happens to be the blog that I write, the headline reads, The Druckerites must issue a safety recall for their emergent church product line. Yeah, and I I wrote it, by the way. Um, Yeah, you can find this at extremetheology.com. And uh, here we go. This is what I wrote earlier today. Uh, Rick Warren and Bob Buford and Bill Hybels are the Druckerite trinity. All three of these men were personally mentored by the late business guru, Peter Drucker, and these three men, more than any others, are responsible for innovating the church by purposely changing congregations from a pastoral leadership model to a CEO-slash-innovative-change-agent leadership model. All of these innovations were strategically crafted under the careful eye of Peter Drucker. All of these innovations were incubated, introduced, and injected into the church through the coordinated efforts of Drucker's disciples through their different but intimately connected organizations, Leadership Network, the Purpose Driven Network, and the Willow Creek Association. What many people don't realize is that the emergent church is a product created by and promoted by the Druckerites. Now, if you don't believe me, then it's time for you to listen or maybe re-listen to my interview with Doug Paget regarding the genesis of the emerging church. Paget provides us with an expert insider's look at how the emerging church came into being and got off the ground. What you will discover is that without the Druckerites, there may have never been an emerging church. The Druckerites formed, bankrolled, and promoted the emerging church much the same way a music marketing company might form and promote a boy band like the Backstreet Boys. Or in sync. Now, I want you to let you know. A little pause here for a second. Um, I, I tweeted this out earlier today, and somebody really took issue with me, um, basically linking up the emerging church with the Backstreet Boys and In Sync. And their issue was is that as bad as the Backstreet Boys and In Sync are. Uh, they didn't think that they were as bad as the emerging church, and, they, and so they saw that really as kind of a backhanded insult against the uh, Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. I just wanted to let you all know that. Now, what I did here on, on the blog is I actually put uh, a little uh, video player up that allows people to hear my interview in its entirety with uh, Doug Paget. I won't play that right now, but you know, if you went to extremetheology.com, you can actually re-listen to my interview with Doug Paget. And uh, so I kind of continue here with the assumption that somebody would pause and listen. Now, after listening to Paget's retelling of the story of the emergence of the Emerging Church, is it any wonder why Druckerites like Rick Warren and Bob Buford lent their support and credibility to the Emerging Church? Well, they're responsible for creating it. Now, take a look at who endorsed Dan Kimball's 2003 book, The Emerging Church. In that uh, list on the in the book, you will find you will see both Druckerites as well as outright emergent heretics all singing the praises of Kimball's book. In fact, Rick Warren and emergent apostate Brian McLaren both wrote the forward to the book. And what I did there at the site is I actually, since I own a copy of uh, Kimball's book, I scanned the first the cover as well as the first nine pages. Of the, uh, of the book, uh, and basically put it in a PDF file. And I used a service called Scribd, which is, uh, which gives you the ability to, uh, post, to upload a, a PDF file. And then, it, and then you can embed that PDF file kind of like a YouTube video on your blog. And so I, I've embedded that, uh, that particular document there for people to see. And they can read Rick Warren's, uh, forward to Dan Kimball's book on the emerging church and, and also take a look at the entire list of people who endorse dan Kimball's book. Now, keep in mind that was published in two thousand and three and really represents the early spirit and thinking of the emerging church. Uh, the problem was is already back then McLaren was a heretic and he was engaging in deconstructing uh you know the the Christian faith as we know it. Now let me continue. So with my I continue with the assumption that you've taken a look at the document that I post, posted and I ask a question. Why would a supposedly conservative evangelical pastor like Rick Warren want to lend his credibility to the emergent Church and have his name be directly associated with men like Tony Jones, Doug Paget and Brian McLaren? Rick Warren is a Druckerite and the Emerging Church is a product developed by the Druckerites. Rick Warren is, in fact, one of the fathers of the emerging church. That's why he lent his name and credibility to the product. What's also patently clear is that when the Druckerites spend time and money developing new church business products, they spend zero time and money on quality control. Sadly, the Druckerites are so enamored with innovation that they have no systems in place to vet out false teachers and heretics. As a result, Druckerite products may in fact pose a severe safety risk to the church. Case in point, I have been saying for almost five years now that Brian McLaren is a heretic and a dangerous postmodern liberal. Yet, McLaren has written articles that have been featured at Rick Warren's pastors.com website. Rick Warren lent his credibility and endorsement to the emerging church movement without even so much as a hint that he had any concerns about the troubling doctrine and theology of its leaders. Bill Hybels has invited emergent leaders like McLaren to speak at Willow Creek conferences and youth leader conferences. Yeah, that's a fact. You know, I mean, as recently as 2008... Uh, You had Brian McLaren speaking at the Deep Shift Conference, which was a uh, a, a Willow Creek conference for youth leaders. Uh, And Bob Buford's Leadership Network has been promoting and selling McLaren's book for years on the Leadership Network website. Now, what does this prove? It shows that there is absolutely zero doctrinal and theological oversight when it comes to the Druckerites and the products that they develop. In light of the fact that Brian McLaren has finally decided to come clean and lay his theological cards on the table in his new book, A New Kind of Christianity, and in light of the fact that McLaren has finally admitted that those of us who've been saying that he denies the fall of man, hell, Christ's penal substitutionary atonement, the inerrancy and authority of Scripture, and Christ's return in glory to judge both the living and the dead were right all along. That's right. I've been right all along. In light of that, I'm calling on the Druckerites, Rick Warren, Bob Buford, and Bill Hybels to issue a safety recall for the entire emerging church product line. Furthermore, I'm calling on the Druckerites to publicly repudiate and rebuke Brian McLaren, Tony Jones, and Doug Paget for their heresies. I'm calling on the Druckerites to remove all emerging church products from their youth groups, including any books by emerging authors, as well as all NUMA DVDs. I'm calling on the Druckerites to issue an apology to the body of Christ for failing to put the proper safety systems in place to vet out false doctrine and heresy from the products that they develop. I'm calling on the Druckerites to convene a standing theological safety committee to doctrinally review and scrutinize all Druckerite products and methods in light of sound doctrine and a Christ-centered slash gospel-centered theology. The decisions of this safety committee must be binding. This safety committee should be comprised of top theologians and church practitioners who still firmly hold to the doctrines and confessions of the Protestant Reformation. For this committee, I nominate Dr. Michael Horton, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Alistair McGrath, the Reverend William Swirla, the Reverend Todd Wilkin, the Reverend Ken Jones, Doctor Kim Riddlebarger, the Reverend Paul Washer, Phil Johnson of the Pyromaniacs blog, and the Reverend Jeff Knoblet. It's time for Rick Warren, Bob Buford, and Bill Hybels to do the right thing and admit that they've endangered the body of Christ by releasing a doctrinally defective and theologically dangerous product for the sake of the body of Christ they must issue a safety recall for their entire emerging church product line
1: <clears throat>
0: now those of you who are thinking i'm just engaging in hyperbole no i actually mean this i actually mean it this is exactly what needs to happen what we've learned now since we know that the Druckerites are responsible for bankrolling and creating and funding and starting up this whole emerging church product, and that we now know that it is absolutely from the beginning was theologically flawed, and we now know that it it's not safe, their product line is not safe for the body of Christ. That there needs to be an investigation, As to who's responsible for all of this, there needs to be some heads rolling, some repentance uh, taking place, maybe some changes of leadership and some systems put in place for doctrinal to basically vet out bad heresies and bad doctrines and uh, get rid of and basically make these Druckerite products um, safe for the body of Christ because they're currently not, not in any way, shape or form. And, uh, you know, the fact that they've bifted this badly on their emerging church product pretty much tells me that they can't be trusted with any of their other products. And, uh, you know, no church should be adopting or or taking a look at or even considering any products developed by uh, the Purpose Driven Network, by the Willow Creek Association or Leadership Network, because there are no safety measures in place to ensure that that uh, bad doctrine and and heresy doesn't come along with their products. Okay. Now, moving along to our next segment, since we're talking about Brian McLaren, I'd like to play for you a little bit of audio from Brian McLaren's recent appearance. I think it was over this past weekend on the State of Belief radio program. Now, I'm not going to play the entire thing. I'm just going to play a little bit of it so that you can kind of hear a little bit more of – uh, the rhetoric that uh, Brian McLaren is now engaging in as he promotes his uh, new book. So basically, think of it this way: this is a uh, this is a radio appearance designed to help you know bolster sales, uh, you know, of his book. And you know, the guy that uh, is interviewing him. Hang on a second here. Let's see if I got this guy's uh, info in front of me. Yeah, here we go. His uh, the host. The the host of State of Belief is the Reverend Doctor C. Welton Gaddy. Uh, he leads the national nonpartisan grassroots and educational organizations, the Interfaith Alliance and the Interfaith Alliance Foundation. <clears throat> Ecumenism, okay. And he serves as the pastor for preaching and worship at Northminster Baptist Church in Monroe, Louisiana. And he's one of 20 international religious leaders on the Council of 100 Leaders, a group created by the World Economic Forum to improve dialogue and understanding between the Western and Islamic worlds. Okay, so there you go. That's uh, that's who he's who's interviewing him. And so I want you to listen carefully. And then what we're gonna do is we'll, um, you know, we'll springboard from this portion of the program today in listening to Rick, uh, not to Rick Warren, but to Brian McLaren. And uh, I'm gonna read to you part of a great article that kind of outlines some basic, uh, basic hermeneutical principles uh stuff that I've been saying on the program for a little while now but it's nice to get another uh you know, kind of get a different point of view on it and uh and then I'm going to do the unthinkable I'm going to actually read for you the entire book of Hebrews by way of contrast to what you're hearing McLaren say so uh stay tuned lots of stuff to go on but here's uh here's Brian McLaren on the uh you know the state of belief program
2: Your book begins with a realization that you shared with others in different Christian communities. You say you all agreed that something isn't working in the way we're doing Christianity anymore. Uh, what brought you to that conclusion?
1: Well, I, I suppose uh, a number of things. Strong, the strongest would be my own experience as a pastor. Um, what I, When I would sit across the table with someone uh, across the desk from, with, from someone who uh, had begun visiting my church, and they would begin asking me their questions. And, and I, w- I would think about the kind of answers that I had been taught or, or had been given myself when I asked questions. I just realized something wasn't matching up, you know. The, the, I didn't have uh, good answers to a lot of the uh, the good questions that were being raised.
2: Well, I want to get into uh, the details of some of the ten questions that you pose in the book, but first, uh, okay, I want to point something out here. So he basically he's talking about his experience as a
0: pastor. People would come to church and they would, you know, meet with him and ask him really good questions, and he didn't have good answers. And so that means the solution that he needed to come w- come up with was completely jettisoning uh, orthodox Christianity and building a Christianity from the ground up. Does this make any sense to you at all? doesn't make any sense to me.
2: First, I have to point out that we're talking about very large questions here, questions about the nature of God, the message of the gospel. And it makes me think that you're saying that Christians basically need to go back to the drawing board and ask, uh, what do we believe? Is that a fair assessment?
0: Okay, now, that's a great question, and I think that's a fair question to be asking Brian McLaren. Because, again, uh, remember yesterday's Chalice, uh, you, know, ch- you know, the was it yesterday or the day before when Chalice took off the gloves? Chalice, <laughs> you know, makes it really clear, and I've read, I've, I'm almost done with the book now. Um, you know, McLaren denies the doctrine of hell, denies denies the fall, you know, man didn't fall, he ascended. He denies the doctrine of hell. He denies the fall. He denies uh, the penal substitutionary atonement. He denies the authority of Scripture. Um, he, den- he basically denies the inerrancy of Scripture. You know, it's a human product, basically. You remember the, uh, the quote that I gave you the other day that the reason why God seems so petty and, and emotionally immature is because in Genesis we have a kind of an underdeveloped character there. Um, and, uh, you know, and he denies Christ's return in glory to judge the living and the dead. Basically, he holds to, uh, the, again, the dis- proper description here is neo Hegelian panentheistic universalism. That's really what McLaren is basically saying we need to change Christianity to. Okay? You know, basically throwing out all of, you know, he attacks Paul. You know, you get what I'm talking about. We've talked about this, you know, in in depth here on the program. So Welton here kind of picks up on the fact that, boy, it sure sounds like we're what we need to do is just kind of scrape, not the foundation clean. He wants to completely eliminate the foundation itself, raise the building, take out the ball, smash everything down. And uh, rebuild from the ground up, but then, you know, take some pieces of furniture from, you know, from the 2000 years of, of historic Christianity and, you know, maybe, maybe some of the, you know, and, you know, some ornaments of, of that and put them in places in the new building that he's constructed that, that we can look at them and, and admire them, you know, but, you know, he doesn't want a Christianity built on the foundation of, uh, man 's fall into sin and christ 's redemptive work on the cross for our sins, and that God is going to return in glory to judge the living and the dead, and that some people will actually go to hell and others will spend an eternity with him with God in heaven. He hates that narrative and calls it the greco roman narrative and he couldn 't be farther from the truth. that is not a greco Roman narrative by any stretch of the imagination but anyway let's uh, let 's hear what uh, Brian McLaren has to say about this
1: yeah, I think it is a fair assessment. I, I, I mean, on the one hand, I'm not
0: recommending. <laughs> Hang on, did you hear that? Hey, let me uh, let me back up and ha- rewind, and he lets you hear the question again, and then let the, just hear his f- initial response. Because again, McLaren is a a, a master of double speak.
2: Uh, we're talking about very large questions here: questions uh, about the nature of God, the message of the gospel, and. It makes me think that you're saying that Christians basically need to go back to the drawing board and ask, uh, what do we believe? Is that a fair assessment?
1: Yeah, I think it is a fair assessment.
2: I... <laughs> <laughs> yep, he
0: admits it. Let's continue.
1: I I mean, on the one hand, I'm not recommending that we hop, skip, and jump over 2,000 years of church history and just ignore all of that and go back to the Bible, and now we'll get it all right and fix it all up. I, I, I don't want to leave anything behind. I want to learn from all of our history.
0: Yeah, but I want to reject it. We, we, we want to reject it, but we want to learn from it.
1: But, but I do think we've got a number of reasons uh, these days to say, um, well, well, let's go back and try to get a, a fresh vision of what Jesus really was about. and
0: a fresh vision of what Jesus – we need a fresh vision. What about an accurate one? I mean, uh, people have fresh visions of Jesus all the time, and uh, usually the fresh ones are the uh, false ones. What about an accurate?
1: And, um, and let's look back at our history and see not only the great heroes and the great breakthroughs uh, and, and the great resources uh, that have come from our faith – but let's also be honest about some of those more painful things, some of the kind of – some some of the moral failures of our history, and let's try to learn from those mistakes as well.
0: Yeah, so because we've had moral failures, we have to completely jettison orthodox – the orthodox historic Christian faith. You know, see, because um, – You know, because uh, Christians, some Christians were on the wrong side of slavery. We had to jettison, you know, because there were Christians down in, you know, in the South who owned black slaves. They were on the wrong side of history here, and and they were using the Bible to justify their immoral behavior. And therefore, we got to jettison the Bible. You see, and see, there were Christians who went on crusades and killed Muslims. So we got to completely jettison the Bible. That's got to go.
2: Well, you begin with the narrative of the Bible itself. Uh, Many Christians and and probably non-Christians believe the Bible uh, to begin with what we call the fall when Adam and Eve uh, ate the fruit in the Garden of Eden. Some people say it was an apple. Uh, The human race then is condemned to a life of suffering because of that uh, original sin, which in some way influences people even today. Those who repent uh, end up in heaven, those who aren't quote saved end up in hell, but I don't think that's the narrative as you see it, is it
1: um, well that's the narrative I was taught
0: yeah, it's not the narrative you believe
1: um, but what what I've been looking you know it's funny when you're a pastor and you preach every Sunday and sometimes many times a week, you actually spend a lot of time in the Bible. And and what I began to, to
0: feel was that... Uh, what I began to feel, what I began to feel, what I began... Did you hear that? What I began to feel. Here's the deal. I want you to let you know something here, okay? I come to Fighting for the Faith five days a week, and in a large portion of what I do here requires me to be in the biblical text. And so I'm constantly reading the text, working on... I'm trying to perfect my Greek... And I have a goal, you know, and that is is that by January of next year I'm off the English when it comes to the New Testament. And I got to tell you, there's a lot of pressure <laughs> I'm putting on myself, and because you know, yeah, you know, I'm constantly running across words that I don't know and I'm and, and and I'm not familiar with. Anyway, that's kind of a different story. Anyway, so I'm in the biblical text all the time, and I don't have any of these such feelings. But he had because he was a pastor, and he had he had feelings like this that there was something amiss, something wrong. So, I mean, that justifies it, that he had feelings, just had a sneaking suspicion. I, you know, and I wasn't, I wasn't the only one, but I was, you know, one of the, one of the revolutionary guys who was really thinking, man, there's something wrong with this whole idea of sin, the fall, Christ's penal substitutionary atonement, his coming again with glory to judge the living and the dead, uh, you know, hell and things like that. Man, you know, I just, I had a feeling that this wasn't right. That's all subjectivism. And the funny thing is is that I'm working in the text every day and I don't have any such feelings. In fact, the more I work with the text and the more I look at it objectively aside, apart from my feelings, I get feelings that come from it. The, the more I'm convinced that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. I mean, this is an amazing book that uh, could not possibly have been written by humans. Anyway, just, you know.
1: I would read a story like the story of Adam and Eve in the garden and eating of the fruit. Um, th- there were two layers uh, of activity going on. One was what's, really, what's there in the text, and then the other is all of the, uh, the, the interpretations that I, was, that I inherited and I was taught uh, that I would bring to the text. And um, one of the things I think all of us who are serious students of the Bible want to do is we want to realize that our interpretation isn't exactly the same thing as the text and that there might be other ways to read the text. Yeah, there
0: might be, but see, again, we're going to read a little article here on hermeneutics as soon as we're done with this and come back from the first break. But
2: we'll continue. I really like the analogy that you use in the book. You say the Bible is not a constitution. It's more like a library.
1: Well, that's really one of the seminal ideas uh, that I hope will be helpful from the book. Um, a lot of us have been taught uh, to read the Bible as if it were a constitution, and it's not surprising we would do that. We, you know, we live in constitutional democracies, and constitutions are very sacred to us in the political realm, and and so we would. It's no surprise we pay the Bible a compliment by by treating it as if it were a constitution.
0: I mean, l- listen to the pious talk. Isn't it great that we pay the the Bible a compliment by thinking it's a constitution? You know the funny thing is is that this idea that the Bible is authoritative and binding authoritative and binding predates the Constitution by millennia okay let me <clears throat> let me just give you one example of a text. Hang on a second here i gotta pull something out of uh out of my computer. Oh hang on a second here. This, this is one of the texts that I I I'm, I'm teaching on uh, doctrinal theology, and I'm in Acts chapter eighteen, verses twenty-four through twenty-eight. I just want to point something out to you here. I mean, the, the, hang on. If you have your Bible with you, turn to Acts chapter eighteen, and um, what we're gonna do here is I I this is what I call the the theologian's text. Uh, that kind of gives you some really great ways of looking at it at the job of a theologian now listen carefully okay okay he 's saying it 's a library you know it 's a li- it kind of shows us you know we can research and see how different questions were dealt with in in different eras you know in different eras as people experienced God um, rather than constitution. see if this is constitution talk to you or library talk. Acts chapter 18, verse 24. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus, and he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Let me read that sentence again. He taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Okay, important words there are he taught accurately, Priscilla and Aquila taught him the way more accurately, and he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Constitution or library? No, absolutely, Constitution. If you have an idea of accuracy and even more accuracy, then you're dealing with the Scriptures in a way that demands that they be dealt with pre- with precision, and that if you do- if you are off, then you may not be accurately handling the Word of Truth. The Scriptures themselves teach us Constitution, authoritative and binding words of God. And that people can understand them less accurately than others, I just want to point that out by way of you know refuting uh brian mclaren didn 't want to let that one go let 's continue
1: The problem is uh when the Bible was written, there was no such thing as a constitution
0: mm.
1: and uh uh so to to put the Bible in that category is is a category mistake
0: uh, by the way uh that's <clears throat> again, this is not, this is not Americans sitting and going, okay, we have a constitution, maybe the Bible's like that. If anything, we could probably make the case that the idea of a binding constitution comes out of Christianity, where we have an authoritative and binding word of God. If anything, the constitution and our concepts of the constitution spring from our understanding of scripture, not the other way around. You know, there's another passage that comes to mind. Hang on a second here. Doing a little bit uh, uh, mistaken. There's a, there's a, in the, um, you are, uh, hang on a second. Let's see if I can find this. It's probably in the NIV because that's the translation I remember. Uh, oh yeah, here we go. Mark tw- chapter 12, verse 27. Uh, by the way, let's take a look at Jesus's uh, use of scripture here in in his uh, discussions Uh, with the Pharisees and with the teachers of the law. Mark chapter 12, uh, verse 27, Mark 12. And let me apply our three rules here, context, context, context. Let's see what Jesus thought about this. Okay, so um, the Sadducees, this is Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 18. uh, From the English sanctified version I read, the Sadducees came to Jesus, who uh, came to him who say that there is no resurrection. So the Sadducees say there is no resurrection. Sadducees are like the uh, ancient world's version of a modernist liberal. Uh, And they asked him a question saying, Teacher... Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Uh, There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and then he died and left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, leaving no offspring. By the way, the way the story goes, I'm thinking, stay away from this woman. There's something wrong here. And the third, likewise, I bet you anything at this point by brother number three, there ain't no insurance company that'll uh, insure any of these guys who married this woman. And the seventh, uh, all the way down to the seventh, leaving no offspring. And last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Now, see what's going on here: is that the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, so they're they're asking some kind of. You know, this is like the equivalent of how many angels can dance on the head of a needle, kind of question. So watch Jesus' jujitsu move here and see if Jesus is using uh, the scriptures as library or constitution. Uh, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised... Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the living. You are quite wrong. Yeah, I wonder how Jesus was using the scriptures there. Anyway, let's continue with McLaren. Uh,
1: um, And and what I found to be a much... um, more uh, respectful way of of understanding the Bible is to say is to let the Bible be what it is a collection of documents uh, written by something like forty people over a couple thousand well from many centuries to uh, to to millennia uh, depending on the scholarship you follow uh, but so in, in that way it ends up being a library and and. Uh, for us as Christians, we believe it's a unique library. In fact, we use the highest language we can
0: use to describe it. We no, he doesn't. He doesn't use the highest language he can use because it's not authoritative, inerrant, and inspired, and binding. It's, we want to use high language of it, though. You know, it's inspired. It's an inspired library. That's about as high of a language as I want to use for it.
1: We believe it's an inspired library. But the purpose of a library is different. Uh, from the purpose of a constitution. And one simple way to say it is a constitution tries to remove all debate and uh, uh, to just present one clear interpretation, <laughs> and even try to do that, of course, constitutional lawyers have a lot of arguments. Yeah. But a library... And
0: notice the historical anachronism here.
1: ...tries to preserve key arguments. Uh, it, it, it tries to preserve different voices in, in the conversation that goes on in the culture. Mm-hmm. And when we allow the Bible to be read that way, suddenly it becomes, to me, a lot more dramatic.
0: Uh, suddenly it becomes a lot less binding, and we can now bless homosexuality. And, uh, and,
1: and I think we feel we're being more fair to the Bible itself.
0: My guest is Brian McLaren. We're talking about... To- all right, so there's Brian McLaren, and uh, you know, and I thought that I would play that for you because again, you need to be hearing what this guy is saying, and you need to know where to go in the Bible to refute this man. So when we come back from our first break, we're, we're, our breaks are going to be all over the place today, when we come back. I'm going to read an article on hermeneutics from uh, the uh, volume twelve. Uh, of the present truth magazine. It, it just, I think, is fantastic that helps make this point. And then I'm going to do the unthinkable. I'm just going to read for you the book of Hebrews. All four, you know, 13, yeah, you know, 13 chapters. Yeah, 13 chapters. And I'm not going to comment very much. I'm just going to let the text speak for itself and see if the text itself teaches that uh, Christ was our penal substitute, that Christ. Died for our sins, that some go to hell, and there's an eternal fire. We're just we're we're going to let the book of Hebrews, and, and t- tell me this is basically the book of Hebrews goes to great pains to interpret the Old Testament in light of Jesus Christ, and so uh, we're that's what we're going to do uh, as the part of the next segment, and then we have a short sermon review today from uh, Pastor William Swirla that we will get to. Sometime in the second hour. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook, at facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
3: We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
4: You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church.
0: As the father of two teenage drivers, I know how expensive auto insurance can be. But as expensive as auto insurance is, it's nothing compared to the cost of not having it when you need it. That's why I'm excited to have Allstate Insurance as one of Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertisers. Did you know that drivers who switched to Allstate saved an average of $396 per year compared to what they were paying other companies? Now, I don't know about you, but I think $396 is a lot of money in these tough economic times. Why don't you give Allstate a call and see how much they can save you. You can reach them toll-free at 877-246-1511. Again, that's 877-246-1511. The good folks at Allstate will be happy to give you a free quote over the phone. And remember, you're in good hands with Allstate. We're back. Warning. Emergent false doctrine critiqued and refuted daily here at Fighting for the Faith. All right, I need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. You can support us a few ways. In fact, uh, a couple of mainstream ways to do this, if you would. Uh, you can visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and click on the Join Our Crew button. It, uh, when you do that, you sign up for the Pirate Christian Radio crew. That is a mere $6.95 a month. It automatically comes out of your, the account that you enter the information for right there on our home screen. And uh, when you uh, sign up, pay close attention because at the end of it, at the end of the process, you will be, there is a button that says click here to access the Pirate Christian Cove, which is our secret uh, internet presence, if you would, where you can uh, access our growing Library of great theological resources that will challenge you, stretch you, and grow you in sound doctrine, Christ-centered theology, and Christ-centered apologetics. Good stuff there. And so that's uh, that. The Cove is is our way of saying thank you to those of you who uh, join our crew. And of course, if you'd like to donate a flat amount, you can do so securely online by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box. Five zero eight Fishers, Indiana, zip code four six zero three eight. All right, um, moving along here. Kind of, this this next segment is going to run you know, kind of long, so hang in there. And uh, but uh, today's kind of a, a long form teaching version of fighting for the faith, if you would. Uh, back a long time ago. Uh, when Dr. Rosenblatt was a young lad, there is a <laughs> a set of uh, articles that were put together by some people who left uh, American evangelicalism for the Reformation, and uh, they these uh, magazines were called Present Truth Magazine. And uh, I remember when I was at Concordia, uh, Dr. Rosenblatt highly recommended these things, and so um, you know, I think the, there's a how do I put it? There's there's you can find them online. I think so. But uh, one of the articles was from volume number 12, and it was entitled Hermeneutics. And in fact, I have a link up to this on uh, Extreme Theology in one of my articles. And here's what this says. It, It says, if we're going to successfully read any scientific, philosophical, or religious work, there are fundamental rules to follow. Basically, the same rules apply to a proper reading of the Bible. Now, we're not suggesting that people will understand the Bible if they follow correct rules. The Bible makes it perfectly clear that no man will understand the truth unless he is aided by the Spirit of God. Yet the Holy Spirit is not given as a substitute for human responsibility in the area of reason and common sense. Hermeneutics is an area of human responsibility in approaching the study of the Bible. The person who follows no rules in studying the Bible, yet expects to be illuminated by the miracle of the Spirit, is no better than a sick man who refuses to accept reasonable medical attention while he expects to be healed by a divine miracle. The man who successfully prays, Lead us not into temptation, is not unmindful of his part in steering clear of temptation. And the man who intelligently prays, Lord, give me thy Spirit to teach me thy, the truth in thy word, will not ignore his duty to search the word with diligence and discretion. Um, The Bible, so this, this next section is entitled, Grasp of the Overall Outline of the Bible. The Bible has been written by at least 30 authors from every rank and class of society over a period of about 1,500 years, yet it has a theme, and it is important to get a grasp of the dominant outline. It commences with the creation the fall of man, and in the in, in the intimation of divine intervention for the sinful race. We find that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. That's also the passage that gives us the proto-gospel, where it says that, Christ, that the promised one will crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent will bite his heel. The activity of God for man's redemption is progressively and gradually unfolded, and it has its climax in the coming of Jesus Christ. One of the greatest events in sacred history was the covenant or promise which God made to Abraham. He was promised a seed through whom all the nations on earth would be blessed. As the drama of divine intervention unfolded, that seed turned out to be Jesus Christ. The significance of the Abrahamic covenant had to be progressively unfolded. Although Abraham obviously did not grasp the full significance of the blessing through the promised seed it is clear that he knew it somehow pointed to the redeemer to come john 8:56 this much is clear that's by the way john 8:56 talks about how abraham looked looked forward to christ you know and he was glad so this much is clear beginning with abraham the hebrew nation was given the promise of a coming messiah and it was their great privilege and responsibility to keep that hope alive in the waiting centuries 430 years after God confirmed the promise the promise of Christ to Abraham another great event took place God gave the law to Israel since it was given through Moses the law is something simply called Moses is sometimes simply called Moses or Moses or the law embrace the whole corpus of instruction given for the existence and governance of Israel as God's special nation it included laws that were ceremonial judicial hygienic and moral it is important that we correctly relate these two great events the giving of the promise to abraham and the giving of the law to moses st paul says that the law that moses the law moses added nothing to the promise that's galatians chapter 3 verse 17 the law was given because of transgression till the seed should come galatians 3:19 Without the law, Israel would have degenerated into a pagan state and lost the hope of Christ's coming. The law was therefore necessary to help Israel nurture and keep alive the hope of the coming Messiah. How did the law do it? It did it in two ways. Its stern and unbending moral requirements served as a constant reminder of sin and kept God's people sensitive to their need for for redemption, and its ceremonial aspects foreshadowed that needed redemption. For example, the Passover not only commemorated Israel's redemption from Egypt, but it pointed forward to the real redemption by the blood of Jesus Christ. Every offering of the tabernacle served to be a shadow of the one great offering of the body of Jesus Christ. We find this out in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 through 14, which we'll read shortly. So the giving of the manna, the water from the rock, the healing by the uh, brazen serpent, and many other things which took place under Moses were a type of the coming seed. They were a shadow of the good things to come. These shadows and types of the coming seed were what the writer of the Hebrews called the Old Covenant. The things under the Old Covenant could not be the reality or the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Aaron, the high priest, was only a shadow of Christ. The earthly tabernacle was only a figure of the heavenly reality. The land of Canaan was only a type of that better country that is a heavenly country. Which the worthies looked forward to, Jerusalem and the kingdom of David, were at best only a shadow of the city which has its foundation and whose builder and maker is God. So we say again, that which God gave to Israel in the law and under the law, the tabernacle, Canaan, Jerusalem, kings, etc., was the old covenant, and at best it could only point to something better. It was not the reality of what God promised to Abraham. The Jews in Christ's day tried to turn the shadow into the reality, and not a few are still trying to do this today. Since the seed has come, how can we go back to a temple ritual, blood of animals, Palestine or old Jerusalem, as if these things were any part of reality? Now that the full light of the gospel has come, we must see that real circumcision is the circumcision of the heart that Romans chapter 2:29 talks about. The real Jerusalem is above Galatians 4:26. The real Mount Zion and the real Jerusalem are heavenly. The real tabernacle is in heaven. The real country promised to Abraham is not any part of this present evil world. And the real children of Abraham are those who believe in Jesus Christ. Summarizing the promise of Christ was given to Abraham. The law or the old covenant was given to help Israel keep the hope of Christ coming alive. The law was not the fulfillment of the promise, but a shadow that pointed forward to its realization to take anything of the law, including Jerusalem and the land of Palestine and call that the promise made to Abraham is to utterly miss the purpose of the law. When Christ Finally came the dispensation of law, Moses or the Old Covenant, had fulfilled its function in history. The blood of animals, feast days, the Jewish temple, Jerusalem, and the Holy Land had fulfilled their function. And any return to those things is now a denial of the reality brought to us by Jesus Christ. So let's get a firm grasp then of the general rules for interpreting the Bible. We need to pay attention to five fundamental rules of biblical hermeneutics. Rule number one. The Old Testament must be interpreted by the New Testament. Once we grasp the overall outline of the Bible and see that it is a progressive revelation, we will always look to see how the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. For instance, God promised Abraham a seed which would bring a blessing to all nations. The New Testament interprets that seed as Jesus Christ. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. We are not to take the things of the Old Testament and fabricate the meaning of them out of our own heads. The New Testament interprets the meaning of the Passover, the offerings under the law and the priestly ministry, etc. Now, the same principle applies to the handling of Old Testament prophecies. Those prophecies are not self-interpreting. Some people pride themselves that they can understand these prophecies if they if they simply take them literally, and without consulting the interpretation of the New Testament. They arrive at all sorts of fantastic things which are supposed to happen in modern-day Palestine. A prophecy may or may not be meant to be understood literally. For example, Isaiah declared that God would put a foundation stone in Zion, one that would support a building in the time of wind and hail. He does not say he means that the stone is a person, Uh, He does not say he means that the stone is a person. It is a veiled prophecy of Christ. We need the New Testament to interpret it for us. The same prophet speaks in terms of a highway building program in the desert to make a way for the King of Israel. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 4. Few people would be foolish enough to see this being fulfilled in the freeways which the Israelites are now construct, or the Israelis are now constructing in the new state of Israel. The New Testament authoritatively interprets the prophecy for us as meaning the mission of John the Baptist. Malachi 4:5 speaks of Elijah's, of Elijah's coming before the day of the Lord. No intimation is given that it is not to be taken with strict uh, that it is not to be taken with strict literalness. When we read the New Testament, Elijah turns out to be John the Baptist. The prophet Amos writes about at the same time when God would raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen and build it. As on the days of old, what does this mean? The rebuilding of Solomon's temple? The New Testament interprets it for us. This took place in the outpouring of the Spirit and in the raising of the Christian church, Acts chapter 15, verse 16. Not only does the New Testament show us how to interpret the prophecies of the Old Testament, but it shows us how to interpret the laws of the Old Testament. The New Testament shows us how the laws of ceremony have met their spiritual reality in the person and work of Christ, But not all the laws found in the Old Testament are ceremonial in nature. Some are moral, and their moral principles are perpetually binding. The Apostle Paul refers to a number of them as a rule of uh, of life for Christians. The Sermon on the Mount interprets the moral precepts precepts of the Ten Commandments, and instead of lessening their binding force, Christ strengthens their demand for holiness. Jesus claimed the authority to interpret the law. When a dispute arose about the proper observance of the sabbath he claimed his lordship of the sabbath mark chapter 2 verse 28 and he interpreted the law to allow for works of mercy and necessity to be performed on the sabbath all of this goes to show how important it is that we allow the new testament to interpret the old testament number 2 the gospels must be interpreted by the epistles The Gospels record the historic event of our redemption, the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. But by themselves, historic events are not sufficient. We need an authoritative word that tells us the true significance of those events. If a man thinks he can look at a historic event and out of his own head interpret what that event means, he puts himself in the place of God. Take the historic fact of the resurrection, for example. It is not for us to presume what the resurrection means. The epistles spell out to us what it means, and he who goes beyond what is interpreted in the epistles is fabricating a doctrine out of his own head. "...or passing on what someone has fabricated out of his head. Neither is the prerogative of the church to interpret any of the events of redemptive history. God sent the apostles for that purpose, and we must not add or take away from their word." We need to go to the epistles to correctly interpret the events recorded in the Gospels. The Church often fails to follow this fundamental principle. She often tries to justify some practice or custom by drawing some spiritual lesson from the life, death, or resurrection of Christ, but this is a human rather than a divine interpretation of the Gospel. He that has an ear, let him hear. Rule number three, the incidental must be interpreted by the systematic. Now, this this rule applies to the proper reading of any literature that is is, uh, of any, sorry, this rule applies to the proper reading of any literature. It is common sense, but how hard it is to use common sense when we are so anxious to prove our point. For example, the heart of all the Bible doctrine is the great doctrine of justification by grace for Christ's sake through faith. There are two books in the Bible, Romans and Galatians, which present this doctrine systematically, and they do it also in the perspective of sacred history, the promise to Abraham, the giving of the law, etc. Common sense should teach us to build our understanding about justification by going to the places where the subject and all the ramification of it are treated systematically. Now, there are places where Paul touches on justification incidentally like in Titus chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. He is writing to a fellow minister and has no need to speak in detail. Some have used the incidental passage in Titus in an effort to substantiate the doctrine of justification of infused righteousness or inward renewal. Now let us grant the point that it is possible to get that idea out of ta- uh, Titus chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. Then there is the book of James, a wonderful place where some go to build a prima facie case for justification by works. Major heresies are often the result of turning minors into majors. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul incidentally makes some reference to baptism for the dead, and most scholars will admit that Paul's meaning here is obscure. But the Mormons use that, Uh, use this as the basis for a whole doctrine on baptism for the dead. And while we're talking about the dead, how hard it is for us humans to think rationally when we're governed sentimentally. If we want to prove something about the intermediate state badly enough, we will find a text somewhere to support it. But the chances are that we will build a great edifice on an incidental passage. Rather, we should honestly go to where the subject is treated in a systematic way. Do not interpret the systematic passage in the light of the incidental one, but the incidental must be interpreted in light of the systematic. It is positively foolhardy to build a doctrine on an incidental passage. Rule number four, the local must uh, be interpreted by the universal. The Bible often inculcates universal principles in the context of a local culture, We must be very careful not to make some feature of local culture a universal norm. For instance, Moses took off his shoes as a token of reverence in the presence of God. That was an Eastern custom, which is still practiced in some parts of the world. We Westerners show reverence by taking off our hat. Christian men would not think of going into church with their hat on, for this would show disrespect. But if we were associating with people of another culture we might take our shoes off before entering the church. Paul commands us to greet the brethren with a holy kiss. A strict literalist might insist that this is a form of Christian fraternity and is still uh, obligatory today, but most Christians understand it to mean that we should treat fellow Christians like uh, blood brothers. Similar things may be said about Paul's instruction on the covering of head of women in churches in the length of a man's hair, advice to slaves, etc. We must not make the custom of a local culture, a universal imperative. Number five, the symbolic must be interpreted by the didactic. If we want to know something about the rapture question, we should not try to build a theory on passages that are written in a symbolic context. There are passages in First and Second Thessalonians that speak on the matter of being, quote, caught up. And if these didactic passages are not interpreted in the light of some speculation from a symbolic passage, they are clear enough. Our doctrinal position should be established by a plain, thus saith the Lord, from a straightforward didactic passage. Then we should use this information to interpret a symbolic passage. If we do not do this, we might just as well follow those wild-eyed prophetic expositors who take their text from the Bible and preach from the newspapers. Conclusion these rules of biblical interpretation are by no means exhaustive neither are they suggested as a magic formula to solve all problems and cause all Christians to see eye to eye obviously differences of opinion will remain yet if these rules are honestly applied they will prevent us from using arguments not entirely sound uh from using arguments that are not entirely sound and will perhaps help us to see the difference between pet theories and great testing truths again we say these rules are not a substitute for the Holy Spirit, for without a, conscience depend, a conscious dependence upon his guidance and illumination, all is lost. But on the other hand, many good people need to be reminded that the Holy Spirit does not cancel the need for the human agent to use a sound and sensible approach to study the Bible. I think that's a great article. And uh, what we're going to do right now is we're going to take our second break. When we come back, rather than this, we're going to do a sermon review later on, and it's a short one. But uh, when we come back, I'm going to read for you, in context, the entire book of Hebrews. Then I think it takes some of these basic ideas that we just read in this hermeneutics article. And when you listen, then, to the book of Hebrews, I want you to listen for whether or not the book of Hebrews, written by—which is considered to be an apostolic um, document—written there for us, how it interprets the Old Testament and points us to Christ— and so this is a, a a book, an epistle that's firmly grounded in an understanding and an interpretation of the Old Testament, using this idea of progressive revelation. So uh, th- we we got that to look forward to and come back back. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any uh, previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at faith dot com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
3: Sisyoprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
4: This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough! ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio.
0: Hi, Chris Roseborough here to talk to you about auto insurance. As the father of two teenage drivers, I know how expensive auto insurance can be. But as expensive as auto insurance is, it's nothing compared to the cost of not having it when you need it. That's why I'm excited to have Allstate Insurance as one of Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertisers. Did you know that drivers who switched to Allstate saved an average of $396 per year compared to what they were paying other companies? Now, I don't know about you, but I think $396 is a lot of money in these tough economic times. Why don't you give Allstate a call and see how much they can save you? You can reach them toll-free at 877 246 Again, that's 877-246-1511. The good folks at Allstate will be happy to give you a free quote over the phone. And remember, you're in good hands with Allstate. (laughs) The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, That web address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash chief. Thank you for your support. All right, we're back. Well into hour number two. That's the fun part about doing my show. I, uh, heartbreaks are just kind of, you know, suggestions. (laughs) I break all the rules when it comes to radio. Uh, You have to give me a wide berth, and I think that's how that goes. All right, as promised, this next segment, before we get into the sermon review, I'm going to read for you the entire book of Hebrews from the English Sanctified Version, and um, I'm not going to do a lot of commentary. Okay, I think much of this is self-explanatory. What I want you to be listening for, in particular, salvation—is uh, it for everybody? It was it was the uh, inspired uh, author of uh, the book of Hebrews it was a universalist? If we're saved, how are we saved? Um, Is salvation for everybody or is it not? You know, I want you to listen carefully for this. Is there a such thing as hell and God's wrath? Um, Did the inspired author of the book of Hebrews consider the the idea of the wrathfulness of God to be uh, just the mere invention of humans who were trying to write about their experience of God, but uh, they didn't properly develop that character? I mean yeah that that's i want you to listen carefully to see if the book of hebrews um gives us you know how does it do here and by the way the book of hebrews deals with the old testament it interprets the old testament for us in light of christ so with that being said let's dive into the book of hebrews long ago at many times and in many ways god spoke to our fathers by the prophets Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers flames of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little low, a little while lower than the angels, who have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now when putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for a a little while he was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, that is, he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children of God he has given me. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through for the sins of the people for because he himself has suffered suffered when tempted he is able to help those who are being tempted therefore holy brothers you who share a heavenly calling consider jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him just as moses also was faithful in all god's house But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of the testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold fast our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all of those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands... Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by some sort of disobedience. I'm sorry, so, <clears throat> let me read that again. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and it's active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of morrow, and of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to his eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet is without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in help to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness." Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. He, As he said and being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child." But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by the constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and and faith toward God and of instruction about washings and the layings on the hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those uh, whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the same assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish but may be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, uh, a priest of, of most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace." though they these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives— One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. but he holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens— We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach uh, one his neighbor and, and, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. "...from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more." In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is is ready to vanish away. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. by this the holy spirit indicates that he that indicates the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age according to this arrangement gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation but when christ appeared as a high priest But he has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly are waiting for him. For since the law has... Uh, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds, then he adds, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places and incessantly after receiving the, the knowledge of the truth there, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses how much worse punishment do you think we will we will uh, will be deserved by the one who has spurned the son of god and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward." God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through faith, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now there, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God." to a place that was that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of the promise, as, as in a foreign land, in living tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive when she was pat, well past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promised things By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the the same, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, "'because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. "'And what more shall I say? "'For time would fail me to tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Japheth, "'of David and Samuel, and the prophets, "'who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice, "'obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, "'quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, "'were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, "'put foreign armies to flight.' "'Women received back their dead by resurrection. "'Some were tortured, refusing to accept release "'so that they might rise again to a better life. "'Others suffered mocking and flogging, "'even chains and imprisonment. "'They were stoned, they were sawn in two, "'they were killed with the sword, "'and they went about in skins of sheep and goats, "'destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, "'of whom the world was not worthy.'" wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised, since God had promised something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and you are not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkling of blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we if we reject him who warns us from heaven at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more i shall i shake i <clears throat> yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken that is things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to god acceptable worship with reverence and with awe for our god is a consuming fire let us brotherly let brotherly love continue do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. Jesus is the same yesterday, and today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace— not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the... Re- approach that he endured for here we have no lasting city but we seek the city that is to come through him let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to god that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to god obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those from the dead our lord jesus the great shepherd of the sheep and by the blood of the eternal covenant equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through jesus christ to whom be glory forever and ever amen i appeal to you brothers bear with me bear with my word of exhortation for i have written to you briefly you should know that our brother timothy has been released with whom I shall see if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who come from Italy, send your greetings. Grace be with all of you. Amen. And that was the book of Hebrews. So my question for you, my question for you is, who are you going to believe? Brian McLaren? Or are you going to believe the word of God? Plain and simple. In fact, I offered no interpretation there, just read it straight. And I asked the question, who are you going to believe? Brian McLaren and the emergence and the liberals, or are you going to believe the word of God? But as the book of Hebrews says, today, don't let your heart be hardened as in the day of the rebellion. If you're going to reject God's word, understand that God on the last day will reject you. That's the judgment that you face. All right. We are going to switch gears one more time. I have a brief sermon I would like to play for you today, which does require me to uh, cue up our uh, sermon review music. The uh, sermon itself. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Our sermon today is a brief sermon preached by the Reverend William Swirla from Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Hacienda Heights, California, and this is another sermon on Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. In light of the fact that the liberals and Rick Warren are completely torturing this text, I think it behooves us to hear yet another good sermon on this topic so that uh, we get a better sampling, if you would, from good pastors and how they handle this particular text. Now before we get into the sermon review, I am going to read that text, even though I just read 13 chapters of the book of Hebrews, I will read a few more verses from the Gospel of Luke to set the stage for our sermon today. So let me kill the music, and we're going to tootle over to uh, my computerized Bible and we're going to type in Luke chapter 4. And we're going to look at verses 16 through 30. And here's what it reads. And he, that's Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went up to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written... The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they all spoke well of him, and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth, and they said, Is this is not this Joseph's son? And and they said to, and he said to them, Doubtless you will quote me the proverb that says, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, <clears throat> I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up. 3 years and 6 months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, to the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. That is the gospel reading that forms the basis for this particular sermon by uh, Pastor William so- Swirla entitled Fulfilled in Your Hearing. Here's Pastor Bill Swirla.
3: In the name of Jesus, Amen. here again, this verse from this morning's gospel. Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All right, I may as well say it because I know you're all thinking it, and we may as well admit it. Last week's gospel was a whole lot of fun. Jesus changing a 100 gallons of washing water to the finest wedding wine there ever was at a feast. Man, what fun that was. And what fun that must have been at Cana of Galilee as well. Let's face it, if we could have this kind of Jesus every Sunday, every day, Christianity would be a blast, wouldn't it? A party, lots of wine, and even a divine excuse to drink it. What fun! Today is not quite as much fun, is it? Hmm. In fact, it ends with a congregation of unhappy hearers trying to toss the preacher off a cliff. And before that, there are some hard-eyed glances from the hometown crowd as Jesus makes his first messianic appearance in the place where he grew up. Having just returned from my hometown of Chicago and visiting my parents, I have a bit of a personal sense of this episode of Jesus' early ministry. Going home is never easy. People are terribly familiar with you and with your past. They've known you since you were hmm, knee-high to a grasshopper, as they say. And I would imagine that the synagogue in Nazareth was packed that day to hear their local boy made good. I'm sure expectations were running high as the rumors spread all through town concerning Jesus' miraculous powers, his powers to heal, his powers over the demons. Perhaps the people in hometown Nazareth were expecting a little wine of their own. If he could do it in Cana... How about here in his hometown? I would also imagine that you could have heard a pin drop that day in the synagogue when Jesus stood up, took the Isaiah scroll from the synagogue attendant, and rather than the usual custom of having the attendant find the proper passage assigned for that day, Jesus himself takes the scroll and winds it, looks and looks and looks, and picks his own passage. He picks the passage from Isaiah that had to do with the Messiah and how God had anointed him with the Spirit to preach good news to the poor and to liberate the captives. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who were oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And having read that, Jesus rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. Teachers in those days sat down. We stand up to preach, they sat down to preach. I think they preached a lot longer than we do. Every eye was fixed on him, every ear was open, eager to hear now what Jesus was going to say about this passage that he himself had picked. And what he said surprised them. In fact, it shocked them, and when they finally got it, it offended them. Today, this scripture, this passage from Isaiah, has been fulfilled in your hearing. At first, they were amazed and delighted. This was something new. They'd never heard this before from their rabbis. The words of the prophet Isaiah were now fulfilled in their own ears. But then the light bulb went off hey, wait a minute, he just called us poor and blind and captive, and he just proclaimed our liberation in his speaking. Who does he think he is here?
0: Okay, now I want to point something out here. Those liberals who want to turn this into a social gospel passage, uh, their reaction of the crowd doesn't make any sense. If Jesus was saying, I'm telling you you need to go and feed the poor and uh, set the captives free and, and all that kind of stuff, I don't think that's the uh, the type of message that would offend uh religious people to the point of wanting to murder the man speaking the message that actually sounds like quite a nice thing to say, oh yes, we must care for the poor, yes, 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 oh yes, we must uh visit the 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 those in prison. You see, what Jesus was doing here, the reason why they were upset is because Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah in their very midst. And that means that they're captives and poor and he's come to set them free. They're hearing blasphemy at this point. So those who twist this passage into the social gospel or what we heard Rick Warren do at Radicalis last week, yeah, they, they're not dealing with the real scandal of this text, the kind of scandal that would cause somebody to want to throw Jesus over a
3: cliff. Isn't this Joseph's kid? He played with our kids. We remember him when he was knee-high to a grasshopper. Is he saying that he's the anointed one of God come to liberate us from our captivity? Who does this guy think he is anyway? And their curiosity about Jesus quickly turned to outrage. It would for us as well, especially if we had watched Jesus grow up in our neighborhood. It's hard enough to believe that this carpenter's son from Nazareth is the son of God in the flesh. It's downright scandalous if you've watched the word become flesh grow up right before your eyes.
0: Exactly. Notice Pastor Swirla here is actually keying in on the major scandal of this passage, the thing that's upsetting the hearers.
3: He's the kid next door, Mary's kid. We remember him. Familiarity breeds contempt, we say, or at least doubt. And that's why no prophet is really acceptable in his own hometown. How could Jesus have grown up in that dense community of Nazareth and someone not realize that there was something a little different about Mary's kid? The surprising answer is this: holiness can be hidden. Jesus' divinity can be completely buried beneath his humanity so that no one would have an inkling of who he was when he grew up as a child. There was no eerie, unearthly glow about him, no shiny nimbus with lettering on it to designate him from the ordinary run-of-the-mill holy person, nothing to identify him. And you know what we say when we doubt somebody's words? What do we say? We say, talk is cheap. Prove it. Show us. Jesus Do a miracle for us like you did in Capernaum. You're in your hometown. Prove it. Prove that you are the fulfillment of Isaiah. Or to quote King Herod in Andrew Lloyd Webber's piece, Jesus Christ Superstar, Herod says to Jesus, prove to me that you're no fool. Walk across my swimming pool. Yes, we want evidence. And this speaks to our wrong-headed and wrong-hearted notions of what miracles are about. Miracles are not for believers, they are for unbelievers. They are not for those who have the word, they are for those who do not have the word. Miracles are rare, exceedingly rare, otherwise they wouldn't be called miracles or signs or wonders. If you can expect one, then It isn't one. If you can call it up on demand, like we sometimes seem to pray, then it isn't a miracle. It's just the ordinary way of doing things. Miracles do not work like satellite television. You can't just dial them up on demand or TiVo them later for your convenience. If water turned to wine every day the way it turned to wine in Cana of Galilee then it would not be considered a miracle and Napa Valley would be out of business. The Nazareth Synagogue had the word. They had Isaiah. They had the Torah, the books of Moses. They had an attendant to take care of the scrolls. They had the word. And they had just heard the prophetic word spoken to them by the very word incarnate, the word in the flesh. And so what more could they possibly have needed than that? And what more do we need than the word in all of its wonderful and various forms? We think we need more. We think we need the religious experience. We think we need the religious feeling. We think we need the spectacular miracle. And please remember, the old Adam in us is a religious junkie who loves these things. He loves signs and wonders so much that Jesus warns his disciples that signs and wonders can deceive even the elect. Jesus knows. He did these miracles for the fringes for the outskirts, for those who were dwelling in darkness, for those who did not have Moses and the prophets. Yes, Jesus did miracles for his fellow Israelites, healing the sick, cleansing lepers, raising the dead, but these were pointers, signposts to something greater. Miracles are not an end in themselves, and when they become that, they become a false religion, a kind of idolatry. The greatest thing that could be said was already said in the synagogue of Nazareth. The scriptures had been fulfilled in the ears of the people. The word of God had hit its target. The spirit of God was seeking to work faith in the hearts of the people who had heard these gracious words of Jesus and to renew their minds and their hearts. Oh, Jesus knew what was on their minds. He knew their hearts. Physician, heal thyself. Prove to me you can do what you say. But Jesus offers them no proofs. They have the word. They have Moses. They have the prophets. He reminds them, oh, he reminds them that there were many, many hungry widows in Israel at the time of Elijah, but only one, a widow at Zarephath, had her oil and grain multiplied miraculously. Hmm, That's not fair, is it? There were many lepers in Israel, but only one, Naaman, the commander of the enemy's Syrian army, was cleansed in the Jordan River by the word of the prophet Elisha. You would think that Israel had the inside line on miracles. You would think that any Israelite could pick up the hotline to God, and call up a miracle on demand. You would think, but you would be wrong. They were for the outsiders. They were for the enemies of Israel to prove this point that God's mercy extended beyond the boundaries of Israel. All those hungry widows and only an outsider gets a miracle. All those lepers and diseased Israelites and only the enemy gets healed. When bad things happen to believers we say where is god and why didn't he do something and that's the mistake of unbelief my friends god has done something he has done the one needful thing something much more significant and far more far more important and far reaching than an isolated miracle jesus the word in the flesh has died on a cross, bearing humanity's sin, bearing the world's brokenness, bearing the curse of the law, bearing every disease known to man, bearing our death itself. He bore all that one time for all time, one man for all of mankind. And miracles pale by comparison When they're placed under the cross, in fact, all miracles point to the cross and they find their source in Jesus' death. Think of it this way. Every miracle costs Jesus his life because every miracle points to his death.
0: This is so good. Wow. Notice he's uh, pointing us to the he's pointing us to Christ from this passage, not to us, uh, you know, having a prison ministry or anything like that. He's pointing to Christ's prison ministry for us. Man, this is good. Man, this is good.
3: Look at the comparison. Miracles are for one person only, the recipient of the miracle. The widow at Zarephath, Naaman the Syrian. And I'll tell you what happens when you don't get yours right. You're disappointed, aren't you? It's not fair. Mad even. Sometimes so mad you want to throw Jesus over a cliff. Or maybe just get a new religion because this one doesn't work. But the cross is for everyone. The cross is healing for everyone. Miracles are temporary. They're a band-aid placed on a wound until we die. And you know about band-aids. They wash off in the shower. There's nothing permanent about them. The cross is eternal. It cures death, the source of all of our problems. Miracles treat the symptoms. They're topical. They're superficial. The cross deals with the cause, our sin. Miracles cannot save you. No one who receives a miracle is guaranteed salvation. The cross of Jesus saves you. Your baptism into his death saves you. Miracles do not forgive sins. They do not give eternal life. The cross is your forgiveness, your life, your salvation.
0: Oh, tell that to Patricia King. Wow, this is so good. Uh.
3: Remember those ten lepers that were healed? Only one had faith. Nine just went their way, happy they were healed. They're all healed. You don't have to have faith to have a miracle. You don't have to have faith to be healed by Christ if he wants to do it that way. One turned around and came back and bowed to the feet of Jesus to praise God. You can survive a lifetime drought of miracles. You don't need them. In fact, you can go an entire lifetime and never experience a single one. But you cannot survive a moment without the Word. You cannot survive a drought of the Word. Pray that God never sends a drought
0: of the Word upon us. I think that's what's happening. Pray that he ends the drought. You have the word.
3: As surely as the synagogue in Nazareth that day that Jesus preached to them had the word. You have the word in your baptism. God's signature seal upon you that you belong to him and he is your God. You have the word of forgiveness. A word spoken into your ears, absolving you of your sins with the full authority of Christ who died and rose for you. It is fulfilled in your hearing. You have the word of Christ in his supper speaking to you personally. This is my body which I give to you. This is my blood which I have shed for you. You and I have the word in greater richness and abundance than any generation before in the history of God's people. We don't have to go to a synagogue with a scroll and an attendant to hear the word of God. We have our Bibles in our own language. Rare. Never before has such a thing been. And I think it's singular evidence of our sinful condition and the old Adam in us that we value the word so little when we have it in such abundance. Familiarity does breed contempt, doesn't it? That we don't flock to hear, that we don't flock to receive, and that we, like the Nazareth synagogue, would just as soon throw Jesus over a cliff sometime than deal with his word, especially when it gets too close to our home. Faith comes by hearing. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. Your faith comes by hearing the word of Jesus. And that word is here. Here today seeking its fulfillment in your hearing. By the word of Jesus you are forgiven. By the word of Jesus you are fed. By the word of Jesus your faith is created and sustained. By the word of Jesus you are granted freedom from sin liberty from captivity to death, from the devil, from the damning sentence of the law that would condemn you to hell forever were it not for the word of Jesus. And all of that, my friends, all of that is delivered into your ears and it is fulfilled in your hearing and in your believing. In the name of Jesus.
0: Amen. Amen. Oh, man. Exactly. In the word of Jesus that was fulfilled in your hearing. Why did I pick that particular sermon? Well, a couple of reasons. One is the obvious reason because we've been talking about this particular passage and I wanted to go back through it. But also because Pastor Swirla in this one reemphasizes and really highlights the fact of the word of Christ, the word of Christ. You are hearing the word of Christ in the scriptures And there you hear of Christ for you. You will never hear the gospel message that Jesus Christ died for your sins in any other religious system. They are hostile to the gospel and all about their own righteousness. The gospel is an alien message and you will only find it in God's word. That's where you will find it. So who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust Jesus and his word? Or are you going to trust Brian McLaren, Tony Jones, Doug Padgett, John Shelby Spong, Marcus Borg? Who are you going to believe? I'm going with Christ. Because Christ, and I find out in his word that Christ is for me. So much so that he died on the cross for all of my sins. And through his word, he's given me faith. And through his word, he sustains my faith. And through his word, he strengthens me and holds me firm. And someday, just as we heard in Hebrews, take us to a new Jerusalem, a land, a new nation, a new territory, a new home. New heavens, new earth, where we will be with the Lamb forever. And you will never have to say to your neighbor, Know the Lord, because everyone from the greatest to the least will know him. This is good news. All right, we're rapidly approaching the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. And if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition, my email address is talkback@fightingforthefaith.com. Of course, I need to remind you, That Fighting for the Faith is listener supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. You can support us a couple of ways. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and there's two obvious ways right there on our homepage. One, join our Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. That's right, join the crew. And It's a mere $6.95 a month, and uh, when you join, you get access to our Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio Cove, a growing treasure trove of plundered theological resources really to help stretch you and grow you in Christ-centered doctrine and theology and sound Christ-centered apologetics. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on Join Our Crew. Of course, if you'd like to donate a flat amount or above and beyond that, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So, what'd you think? Would love to get your feedback. And like I said, you can email me. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for your sins. Amen.